Hey, you're gonna love this interview with David Brumley, a CME professor and the founder of For All Secure. We talk about selling security to the Department of Defense, how he's raised tens of millions of dollars from tier one VCs, and how his startup is the culmination of more than a decade of academic research. Stay with us. David, thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to be talking with you. I'm excited to be here. So I want to start off for folks who do not have a definition of static application security testing. Can you explain first what that is and the either shortcomings or flaws or opportunities that you saw in that model that you wanted to innovate on with your company? Yeah, it's actually pretty easy to explain. So I'll use an analogy. Have you ever typed a document in Microsoft Word and then used grammar check? Yes. Grammar check is static analysis. Okay. And so all those warnings that grammar check gives you, some of them are good, but most of them aren't, is what static analysis does. And currently what people think they need to do is run static analysis daily, every time they're checking in code. And so imagine running a grammar check and getting those same false positives every time. What we figured out um, through research at CMU, through DARPA Innovation, now through commercial company, is that we can learn a lot more about what's vulnerable by actually running the program and using our intelligence to figure out what could go wrong instead of just looking at it like a very static grammar checker. Got it. And so is that, it's basically working in synchronicity or in parallel with the actual operations of the software itself? It does. So our product name is Mayhem. What Mayhem does is it runs the application and then it tries to hack it. So I was going to say, for a security brand, like usually you want like pillars of strength and like guard dog or something, but Mayhem like would almost like scare the potential uh, person thinking about security. The story of Mayhem is, really Mayhem is different. Most products out there, they're going to try to warn you about every possible thing. Think of it as like, you know, if you've ever gotten a home inspection or something that really tries to go into detail and point out every little thing, even those that don't matter. The reason we invaded Mayhem is Mayhem behaves more like a real attacker, and it tries to find zero days. It doesn't highlight a line of code. It actually gives you an exploit. And of course, when you run it, you can see what went wrong. But the idea is that by running Mayhem as part of your DevOps, by getting this, you're not going to get Mayhem after you ship the software. You'll be able to have it in a controlled environment. Got it. And so um, the company was founded out of this research, did you do like university technology transfer? How did the actual like genesis of the company come to be? The story of the company is we started at Carnegie Mellon with this problem of we wanted to find exploitable bugs before attackers. And so when I say exploitable bugs, all software is soft, uh, buggy. But some types of bugs actually attackers can use to take control of your machine. And we wanted to find those before attackers. And we wanted to do it even on software that we weren't writing. The reason for that is I have kind of a radical feeling compared to most of the security community. I think everyone should be able to check their software for vulnerabilities, not just the developer. And so we started working on this technique called Mayhem at CMU, and we actually spent about 10 years on it. Wow. And um, you know, it got the Best Paper Award, all these academic awards. And then in 2014, DARPA put up something called their Cyber Grand Challenge. They said, look, today offense has a permanent advantage. There's just more people on offense than defense, and they have too big of a job. But what if we could build something like self-driving car, but for cybersecurity? What if we could make it autonomous? And so they issued this as the Cyber Grand Challenge. They said, just like for self-driving cars, there was this road that you have to navigate completely autonomously. What we're going to do is have a cyber battle. 
and we're going to see if machines can do what, what uh, humans do. And so we competed in that. We actually won. We got $2 million, and that bootstrapped our company. It's why we didn't have to raise seed money. Um, a lot of companies say their technology is revolutionary. Ours was literally exhibited at the U.S. Smithsonian Museum. For wow. Now. And so we were sitting there thinking, hey, this is really cool technology. It's been independently validated in an international bake-off. It's something the world needs. But it's different. Let's put in the time and effort to commercialize it. And so we spent a few more years doing research and then raised our Series A really to try to bring this to the market in 2008. And so you talked about there being this kind of preceding 10 years of research. And all academics, it's, it's building off of you know, the, the work of, of past giants. But I'm really curious in terms of the personal motivation. We'll come across other entrepreneurs and it's like, you know, I was uh, you know, selling drawings or selling lemonade from like the earliest days and it was to me it was always about the sale or the game or the build of the system. But to have spent so many years with a background in research, I don't suspect that the initial motivation or impetus for someone like you was purely the commercial application or the potential enterprise outcome. To some degree, was there also just like the intellectual stimulation of the, the problem solving itself? Like, how do you maybe give a hierarchy to those motivations? So, so even today, our motivation is not really commercial. It's changed the way the world does computer security, because we're losing. Um, the way I got started is actually kind of a funny story. Um, straight out of college, I actually worked at Stanford in IT, right? So academic university, but in IT. And Stanford was getting hacked all the time. It has an open network, anyone can run machines. And my job was to try to find those people who are compromised and then fix it. And so I remember one day, there was a machine that got hacked that was owned by a Nobel Prize laureate. And you know, me as a, just graduated from undergrad, gave him a call, a little bit intimidated, saying, I, you know, your machine has been hacked, you're gonna have to wipe it and reinstall. And he eventually did it, right? Like most of us, he's like, do I really have to? And I told him he did. Um, and then he reinstalled and he did everything right as far as security, everything. He updated, he locked his computer down, but two weeks later it was hacked again. And what had happened is the attacker had found a brand new vulnerability, what's called a zero day, something that's unpatched, and had exploited his machine and then pivoted and compromised all these machines at Stanford. One of the kind of funny stories is one of the machine was called porgy.stanford.edu. Turns out that's the full DNS name for what's now known as google.stanford.edu or Google. Wow. So I called up, actually, I have an email with Larry, I'm sure, you know, I remember him, he doesn't remember me, saying the machine is hacked. And actually, I worked with Larry to shut down google.stanford.edu at the time. But that event stuck out to me because it really highlighted, as a defender, I was just being reactive. When the attacker found a new attack, all I could do is try to go clean up after him. And so I actually quit work, went and got a master's degree, PhD, and made my research this question of how do I find those bugs first? How do I automate that? And so there is a little bit of a genesis where I started this many years ago, trying to solve the problem that I had, which is I was always playing catch up. How do I scale what the bad guys do and learn it ahead of them so I can actually be proactive? And so once you, you, so you win this award, which is a, a huge point of validation of you know, judges effectively in, in the competition saying this is the most impressive or compelling or high potentiality project. How does that then translate into a business outcome? Because you said you, you went almost like back to research, like the commercial applicability and viability of it. Like what, what I guess maybe like from, from that point to the Series A, what boxes were you checking in order to, you know, prove out the viability of the business? Yeah. 
So when you're looking at research, there's actually different stages. So at a university, you're just doing really basic fundamental stuff. When we did the DARPA competition, we had to make it work once. So if you think about their self-driving car contest, you know, they had to make that car work once for a limited amount of time. On that specific course, that specific at that specific course. day. And it's an artificial train. It's representative, but it's artificial. So for the next few years, what we were trying to figure out is, how do we build a product around this that's scalable, that's reproducible, that can work with people's existing workflows? And, you know, just as an analogy, if you look at Tesla and where they're at today, compared to the self-driving car competition, which was 15 years ago, it takes a while. And so a lot of the work that we were doing was taking it to that next level of how do we bring this to the world? We know the idea works. It's been independently validated. How do we do it? We also had some just personal motivation. It turned out China replicated this experiment that DARPA did four times. And so they're trying to develop the same technology that we are. And so we felt, you know, just personal motivation to get it out there, as well as just this, hey, hey, we need to, we need to get this out. You know, the U.S. needs this sort of technology. U.S. businesses need this to beat attackers. And so really what the, the subtext of that is, is that the customers for this, and we, we, you know, we heard of the solar winds attack or the solar winds hack if people are paying attention to, um, you know, some of the kind of like business and government headlines and geopolitical headlines. Um, is that the end customer for something like this is potentially not just the biggest Fortune 500 companies in the world, but our biggest institutions, our governments, the, the entities where security is uh, not only one of the, the key elements of their existence, but one of their key responsibilities and at the highest stakes. Exactly. If you go talk to some security people, they're most worried about confidentiality. They don't want user information to get stolen. But when you're looking at the sort of levels we look at, any sort of bug on an airplane, car, uh, weapon system, right, is a big deal. Even something that just makes it unavailable. That means, you know, when you want to go, you can't go, is a big deal. And what we found is our initial go-to-market is actually that's translated pretty well into companies like Roadblocks and Cloudflare that actually have that same need where it's not just security in the sense of, hey, keep my PII private, but this thing is critical and it needs to stay up all the time. Yeah, they're usually evaluated through the, their uptime, and it's like 99.999999% is the ideal that everyone's getting. Exactly. And they're running custom software. You know, the software that's on a plane or cloudflare, that's all custom software. So tell me about, so at, at the Series A level, were there already customers in place, or was it really just the, hey, the product is finally ready to roll? Like, what like what was the staging there? Because you're, you're articulating some of these customers that you landed. Yeah, it, it was... A really interesting time for me. So when I was doing the Series A pitch, we had a number of people using Mayhem. But all of our customers were more service-based contracts, meaning like someone would come in and say, hey, how, can you help us adapt this to our environment? And mostly we would be billing for the work to do that. And we actually had a pretty reasonable income. And when we went to get Series A, we actually had offers from several top VCs. We ended up taking it from NEA. But we went to them and we said, look, the current customers it's a service-based revenue. What we want to do is be product subscription-based. What we're going to do is drop all those customers and then reignite a fire with them as subscriptions so we can grow this actually as a company. And to say that another way, that's you know the classic B2B SaaS model, which is one of the most attractive models in business. But the usual you know, SaaS subscription fee is probably not as high as an actual bill for service type of model. But the idea is that eventually you get more customers who are all coming in and 
more or less plug and playing this software, which makes it more scalable. There's a kind of higher upside story. Absolutely. And it goes beyond B2B. It's really just subscription based. So if you look at Netflix and everyone is doing this. Um, and so I, I like subscription based because it aligns your incentives with that of the customer. You know, in the old days or with service base, it's one and done. You deliver and then you walk away. With subscription base, you have to continually show value. So one of the most interesting things to me when I interface with technologists like yourself, and that, that's the kind of archetype that I would fit you under clearly from the story that you've shared so far, um, is when that skill set, which is very distinct, has to then merge with sales and how you actually go about one of the other hardest skills in the entire game of business, which is enterprise sales. This is, these are some of the most highly compensated, you know, when, when you're proficient at it, experts in the game. How have you brought those two skills together or made your organization capable of delivering on that front in addition to the technological capabilities? Uh, you're right, it is hard. So surprisingly, actually, professors have to be somewhat good at sales just to get funding. Um, and even before that, I sold Kirby vacuum cleaners and cut knives. So I had a little <laughs> bit of door-to-door -door experience, right? But I think part of what you're asking goes beyond can I sell? It's how do you build a sales organization and machine? So that is difficult. And so the first thing that I did with our Series A is I brought in a COO to help me. Her name was Tiffany. She was amazing at this. And she helped us get to the next stage where we had our marketing department set up. We had our first sales department and our first account executive. And then actually we just, with the Series B, just brought in a new leader for both sales and marketing to continue up-leveling. But I, I think you're, what you're getting at actually is it's really important to partner and to bring in that expertise where people have done it before, where, where I have Right. And the other point there, too, is we're talking about like a DevOps product. So the technical sophistication required to actually even make the sale, you can't just simply play on, you know, baseline human assumption. Like, hey, we all, you know, speak the same language of wouldn't it be great if there was less traffic or wouldn't there be great if, you know, the food was tastier? Like, we're talking about something that has a degree of sophistication. You even kind of simplified it for me, yeah. knowing that I don't know as much about cybersecurity that you know you have to be able to still speak the language of the CIO of the CTO who is responsible for these really high stakes decisions and has all that sophistication to know what's what. Yeah, it was kind of a wake up call in some ways. So I'm a pretty technical guy and a lot of even my CISO friends were technical or at least had that that background in technical. But what we've seen really over the last maybe decade is a rise of CISOs and CIOs who are really business oriented as opposed to technical oriented. And that's not to say they're not technical but their main job is business management. And so being able to translate into to, to them why we're unique and why we're important um, has been part of the journey, right? Because security is a noisy space. Everyone is getting up and saying, look, you may be hacked, you should buy our product. And you have to figure out ways to really make yourself unique. And it's also almost like from a probability standpoint, this interesting kind of like what if statement. It's like, well, I can come up with infinite what ifs. Like what if someone shoots a boomerang through this window and like that's their entry point. It's like, okay, that's probably not a super high probability. And if I have limited resources to defend myself, I'm not going to start with that use case. I'm going to start with the front door more yeah. likely, right? So in, in terms of, you know, articulating the differentiation there has to be a really interesting problem to solve. It is. And probably for the first few years, right, just learning how to segment and figure out like who out of all the customers you can go to, is it going to most resonate with today was difficult because security is very horizontal, meaning like everyone needs it, right? Whether you're running a small business and at the pizza shop, right? You, you certainly don't want your registers hacked to fortune 500 companies. 
but the way you talk and sell and approach those are quite different. And so that was a really interesting learning experience. What about even segmenting, though, between private and public institutions? Because they have completely different kind of decision-making and sales cycle. So can you talk about that at all? Yeah, actually, this is funny. So what I found most different about going, for example, to the DOD versus large businesses is people's perception that it's different as opposed to the actual difference. Oh, interesting. Um, part of this might just be, I know a little bit of how the DOD navigates, but there's not a huge amount of difference between them, though there's this huge perception that there is. So typically in all these scenarios, what you need to do is you need to go in and do a pilot and show value. And typically that pilot, you're going to talk to a business, uh, the business owner, right? This is so someone with the budget, and then they're going to delegate it down to someone to do the actual work. And so part of the pilot is doing that. And then after they do the pilot and they show success, then they have to figure out which part of the budget for this year am I going to take this out of. And so it goes back up to the top. And so that part actually is the same. And in big businesses, what I've seen kind of like the DOD is there's this huge procurement challenge. I never thought this would be a problem, um, but it is, which someone wants to buy. I convince you to buy, right? But you're, you're smart. So what you've done is you've delegated it to someone else to do all the negotiation, right? The big bad guy, good cop, bad cop. Yeah. And this is true whether it's a, a Cloudflare, Roblox, or whatever. There's that guy that's been delegated, and now I have to go talk to him. Same thing in the government. I think the bigger difference that we're saying really is just um, the amount of regulation that we have to file when dealing with our DOD is, is far higher. I mean, our technology is used in classified settings, and so we have like closed network stuff while we don't offer that commercial. But the, the sales cycle isn't so different um, but uh, there certainly is the perception. Can I tell you a story about this, actually? Bring it. All right, so we were going to raise Series B, and we had great customers. We had great, you know, we have Cloudflare, we have Roblox, we have a bunch of people that I can't say here, um, but big names that are using it, they're happy. We have uh, customers who will give testimonials, respond to VCs and do one-on-ones with them. We have customers who want to invest in our team. Can I just get a really quick pause? Just I want to double iterate on that. So one of the big things there is the VCs are going to call up existing customers and just understand from the customer's perspective oh, why yeah. it's so valuable. And there's this interesting kind of aligned incentive there where if you really are doing a great job for them, the customer wants you to get more funding because you're going to invest more in the product and provide even more value to them. So it's not that they're going to BS the, the VC, but you, you almost think to yourself like, I, at least early stage entrepreneurs, I think that there's this like hesitancy to just even ask for more, ask for things. But once you've got that customer in place and you're doing a good job for them, you can double, triple, quadruple down on them in, in seven Oh, man, you absolutely need this. So this was, that's a great point. So when you're raising seed, I don't know that you're going to need to show customers. Even at Series A, the amount of background checking they did was pretty small. But as you go through, it's something you have to cultivate is that relationship with customers who are not just customers, but willing to spend that extra time telling the world about it. Yep. Um, and there's a couple approaches. One of the ones that we did is we actually have an uh, advisory council. Where of existing customers of existing who are customers. almost like informing product and roadmap. To we're informing and we bring things to, and these are kind of hand-selected. But we also can then use them when uh, they get an ask, right? Like, obviously, their stuff is going to be more important on the product roadmap. But then when we're going and saying, hey, we want to execute on what you want, can you help us? They're more willing to. Sorry, I derailed your story, though. So the, the funny story about this is we had great customers in NEA, right? Tier 1 VC is backing us. So they're like, it's going to be easy for you to raise. And so as I was going down the, the quote, Sand Hill Road list, right, I did find this perception among many VCs that the DOD was bad. 
In fact, one of them said, we're going to discount all your DOD product revenue to zero. So this is the one thing that I would caution founders against, where when you're working in the government, there's kind of two ways to do stuff. You could sell as a product, but you can also sell services. And I think venture capitalists have gotten burned enough that they're super careful here. And they're great VCs who can distinguish, but it certainly is going to be a liability with others. And I mention this because here in Pittsburgh, we're a high-tech town, lots of professors. A lot of them are like, I'm going to go and I'm going to go get this small business thing, this SBIR out of the army or something, and then I don't have to raise cash and I can get my first few customers. That actually can be a win. Um, it's not a clear win. It's financially a win, but not a clear win. And let me tell you, like, justify why this isn't. So VCs are getting lots of pitches, right? So they don't know, is it service revenue or product revenue? The other thing that they're trying to validate, and we had to work extra hard to show this, is that that's not the only market that you can play in. Me naively looked at the size of the federal budget in security, you know, Series A, thought this was, look, look at just that TAM is huge. We can capture it. What VCs want to show is that you can capture TAM in commercial space as well. And so that's another thing that um, I kind of learned because our initial interest was mostly federal. And I just really amplified that because every book was like, pay attention to your first customers. And I think I would tell any other founder in my situation, that's true, except for if it's the DOD, go find some good commercial customers. Yeah, so I've listened to Palmer Lucky, who founded Oculus, sold it to Facebook, and then founded Andrel, which is a uh, defense company, very different realm, but similarly talked about his challenges in raising capital for his technology company because of how you know directly tied to it was to the DOD as a, a kind of primary customer. And there was, you know, a, a, a relatively smaller cadre of VCs who either, you know, it was part of their macro investment thesis or they had a framework for how to feel comfortable with that. But it's really interesting, you know, there's certain investors where they could also just not have the background or the sophistication to know, like you're saying, the differentiation between uh, services or product revenue. Absolutely. So the top tier, all VCs are great. Like in NEA, A16Z, uh, all, all these people are great. But... You have to imagine, you know, just from the VC's point of view, they're trying to validate this as something that's going to grow over time and give them the evidence for that, keep that top of mind. Um, I think the other thing that was interesting is when you're pitching to a VC, a VC, the one you're pitching to may love it, and they're going to go to bat for you, but there's an entire other committee of people when you're starting to talk about doing serious fundraising, money, you know, real money. Um, and so you're not just pitching to them, you're pitching to a committee at the end. Got it. So another element of the SaaS business model, you, you talk about the pilot and then if the pilot goes well, there's going to be this larger scale implementation. But even beyond that, the, the uh, notion of land and expand, get in, get established with the customer, and then slowly figure out how you can bring them more services and expand the annual contract value of the work actually doing with them. Can you talk about how that specifically works in the security space? Is it moving from department to department? Is it you know, bringing more capabilities to bear? How does that actually work for a company like For All Secure? Um, so I think if you're going in and you're a company that's doing a better version of something they're already doing, it's pretty easy. They got budget, and you could just show that I'm incrementally better in the deploy it system-wide. But for us, we're coming in saying this is a different way to do stuff. And so typically what happens is we go demo it, and there's one line of code that they're really interested in. This is the, the, the mission-critical stuff. And when we start showing them this is how I can exploit it in new ways they never knew before, then we get validation. And then you get the initial budget, and often it's just for that one project. And then what you're trying to do is get up essentially to be in the IT budget, because once you're in the IT budget, that means you're getting deployed company-wide. It's now just part of overhead, if you think of it that way. 
And um, that's also as close to like an infrastructure cost as you can get. Once, once you're embedded there, ideally, you have to imagine the churn is going to be substantially lower. Absolutely. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to actually get into their DevOps cycle, which was uh, quite different than I thought we were going to be four, four years ago. So we need, for our tool, just the compiled code. Stuff you would download was what we needed to do the analysis. But what we found is once you get embedded into the developer lifecycle, you're a lot more sticky. It's harder for them to rip out. I'll also say, you know, you asked me earlier about the difference between DoD and commercial. This is one big difference where land and expand is less important in DoD. They do a lot of work on the beginning and then do one large purchase. Got it. Well, companies definitely land and expand makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And there's also, once again, investors that are more, you know, oriented around, say, GovTech as a kind of umbrella for what they might be investing in. And so they're going to be much more comfortable with that sales cycle and probably also bring resources to bear that's like, hey, here's how to kind of manage that and structure your company for that type of sales cycle versus a kind of more, uh, I don't know if conventional, but private-oriented one. Absolutely. And see, we were trying to do both. And we still are doing both. Uh, most of our focus now is on commercial and expanding there. But it definitely is a, tr a trick to pull, right? It's something that doesn't happen by itself. Yeah, a high degree of difficulty. Um, speaking of degrees of difficulty, and, and this is a little bit cheeky, but we just had a, another guest on, uh, Wesley Gray, who talked about starting his company while being a professor at Drexel. And his is more finance-oriented. But basically, he, you know, very tongue-in-cheek goes, it, it's the perfect way to try to start a company because you've got this, you know, obligation to teach a few classes, maybe do a little bit of research, but you have all this other time to just kind of deploy against wherever your uh, attention seems to be drawn. So can you talk about uh, either, you know, affirming that notion that, you know, being a professor and trying to start a business at the same time is a pretty uh, great gig, or it also, you know, brought certain challenges to bear? Um, well, first, it's a great gig. I mean, if you go look at Silicon Valley, the fact that Stanford and Berkeley are nearby is no coincidence. Yep. I would put one little small spin on what he said, which is the trick for a lot of professors is how to get their students to fund the company where they're just an advisor and major stockholder, right? That way they don't have to do all the work growing the company. Right. And I haven't been able to pull that off. But if you look at Stanford, this is a pretty common thing. So I think, yeah, I mean, the great thing about being at a university is it's not just your ideas, but you have a steady stream of the smartest people coming in, helping you refine your ideas or bringing their ideas to you. And so just this idea of where do I get started really helps. I think one of the nice things about being a professor, like you say, is you can also take some time to do this. So at CMU, you have entrepreneurial leads. I can tell you there's a downside to this, though. And I think if you talk to other people here, they might talk about this as well. When you're a professor, um, especially me, I worked very hard to get tenure. Tenure is hard to get at a place like CMU, right? And if you think about this, this is really setting a minimum for it. An obligation and responsibility. Obligation responsibility, but it also is a job that I can permanently hold. But CMU only gives you three years without teaching for entrepreneurial Then you have to make a choice. Are you going to try to live this dual life or focus on one or the other? And so when you're a faculty member, you kind of can have the best of both worlds for a little bit, but there's a clock ticking. And I have to imagine that, how, how are you thinking about that choice personally? This is probably the most difficult part. I, I still love teaching students, and so I maintain one class that I teach just because I like that connection, and it's actually good for our recruiting. At some point, you've got to make a choice on where you're going to be full-time. So if you look at Duolingo, for example, Luis Von on made the choice that he wanted to teach the world a foreign language. And that's where his heart was. And so he actually left CMU. I mean, we still affiliate faculty, but not, you know, 10-year lifetime appointment faculty. Right. And there is also a degree to which, hopefully, the administrators or the heads of the different departments there 
understand that someone who's actually in the field actively deploying these problems is going to have some really pertinent lessons to teach. So this is probably the number one misconception people have is exactly what you said. I'm full of misconceptions. I love that you're straight. Set me straight. So, you know, if you think about it as a business, the provost may be like, oh, that professor's founding a business and CMU as a spinoff gets some percentage. I want to make that successful. And they do. Right? But at the end of the day, it's the faculty in the department that decide whether or not you get to stay there. Yeah. Not the provost. And they don't have any sort of business motivation. They're going to look at, are you advising students? Are you doing research? Are you an active member of the research community? Because they don't have to think about the financial aspect. So there's this misconception that it's good for the university, but at least at CMU, the, the people who really make the decision are the faculty. But I, I, was, I was even saying, though, like you coming in and teaching a lesson, like you're yeah. going to be able to teach that oh, which absolutely. is at the cutting edge to the students because you're actively building it, deploying it. I think it's not just the cutting edge. When you come back to universities, university were very insulated from industry. Um, and that's just like any specialty, right? Like your neurosurgeon isn't going to know anything about what a GP does necessarily, even though they both went to med school. Right. And so when you're faculty, you get to become an expert. But when you're going to business, you actually learn about a lot about how these things get adopted. And that brings a lot of new challenges. Some of my favorite papers now to read are actually about faculty who had this great idea and it was kicking butt in research and they founded a company and all the problems they ran into were not what they thought they would be. What are some tangible like takeaways? Like you've read papers like that. Like what are some of the takeaways from that? Okay, so one of my favorite is from the founders of Coverity. Coverity came out of Stanford from a friend of mine, Dawson Engler, sold for 300 million to Synopsys. And what he said is, look, in a lab, we assumed everyone used this compiler called GCC. It's an open source tool. Everyone uses it. But when you go into industry, everyone has their own little frameworks that they use. And to sell, that's the first barrier. You can't tell them to use yours. The second thing he pointed out, which was kind of interesting in security, was, you know, he has a tool for finding bugs. You sell it to him, and you, you know, you'd run it. And as a developer, you'd say, okay, I have 100 bugs i got to fix. And you report to your management, I have 100 bugs I need to fix. And then Dawson would improve his techniques, and he'd find 102 bugs. You'd run it and you say to your manager, now I have 102 bugs. And your manager's like, are you doing a bad job? <laughs> Why'd it go up? And so just the fact that that person is in there, finding more problems isn't necessarily the best thing, even if you're right, because you have to think about how that person's going to report it. And there's almost like a social, like, you know, where's the blame actually being uh, right. casted upon? It? You have to think. And it, it took me a long time because it's such a vague statement. How does a person get value? And I was like, that just sounds like BS. But it actually is a fairly deep question where you have to think about how your user is going to get and communicate the value upstream to the person who actually holds the budget. How do you think about value? Because I have, uh, so one of my favorite characters in the kind of like business thought space is a guy by the name of Alex Hormozzi, and he has his, his value equation. And it's your dream outcome multiplied by the likelihood of that outcome occurring divided by the effort required to uh, deploy the solution multiplied by time, time to deploy. I could draw it out. I, I'm more visual, so I could, I could show it to you in, uh, in front. But how do you think about that? Um, so one of the great things about startups is you learn. So first, I have to say that we're learning, and it's different for different personas, quite honestly. And so that's part of what you're getting at. I think what you said is a very nice way to look at it. I think the other thing that you have to take into consideration is people's perception. So one of the, the mistakes we made early on is when we'd run Mayhem, we wouldn't explain to a user the time saved. We'd say, like, here's a bug. Yeah. 
But really what we want to say is, here's the human effort you saved, trying to find it, diagnose it, debug it, and fix it. Because really it's that time part that's the value. Yeah. And I think that's something that can't be overstated. The more you can actually make a report that a person can just print out and hand to someone about what the value was, the better, at least in B2B sales, as opposed to just assuming, you know, everyone is going to think removing an exploitable vulnerability is a good thing. Everyone kind of thinks that is, but you have to put a number for your customers. And that's why at the bottom, the, the divisors are actually the highest leverage pieces. How much effort does this user deploy? How long is it going to take? You know, it's the reason Amazon pushes from two-day delivery to one-day delivery to one-hour delivery, and eventually they're going to be streaming it before you even need it. And it also helps you with segmentation, right? Like when we go in, essentially what we're saying is, look, 25% of your developer time is wasted on false positives, right? Developers get paid a lot of money. Let's say $200,000 a year, so 25%, that's $50,000 a year that you're just wasting. And so if we can remove that, you're saving as a company $50,000. Yeah. Right? But it helps you segment because then you can think what companies actually are thinking at that scale that they want to save $50,000. Yeah. Small businesses are really just like five or six people. They're not going to invest a lot in tools Yeah. because security is just not high on their priority. So even if I save him time, he's probably not doing security anyway. So I, I guess that value statement, it's, you have to look specifically at your users. And one of the things that helped us do is start to target larger businesses where these are big numbers and they're really at that stage of optimizing people's time as opposed to, for example, just getting to market. And that also helps you price it on the basis of value as opposed to price it on the basis of the cost of the ploy or the cost to implement, like you were saying before, with the service base. Yeah, absolutely. Got it. David, this has been fantastic. Uh, I appreciate you sharing so much time and, and insights with us. Uh, before we ask our standard last two questions and wrap up, was there anything else that you were hoping to share that I didn't give you a chance to? So I think the, the big thing that I want to share right now is the way we've been doing computer security has not been working. And a lot of what you're seeing out there is just reinvesting in the same ideas with a new color paint. I think what you got to do is you got to ask yourself, if it's not working, what can we do different? And whether you use our product or something else, I think just really that self-evaluation of, is this just a new coat of paint where someone is giving the same sales talk, but you know a little bit flicker? Or is it a different way of doing it? And that's really what we're trying to get across, is if you start thinking about how can I enable the computer to do things for me, and actually being conscious of that, you can start scaling in ways you wouldn't, as opposed to just thinking of, I'm going to continue doing it the way I was doing it, and hope some magic fixes it. Uh, well, I am inspired by uh, the opportunity that For All Secure has to uh, help people make those changes, and uh, everything that you've shared today is, is, is super exciting in terms of the growth of the company. Uh, for folks that want to learn more, check out everything that you're up to, what digital coordinates can we provide for people? The best place to go is our website, forallsecure.com, F-O-R-A-L-L, S-E-C-U-R-E.com. From there, you can access white papers as well as we have freemium. So we have versions of Mayhem that are just free to the world. For example, right now, uh, we're looking at over a thousand open source programs and just finding new bugs, new vulnerabilities, and helping those get fixed. And so anyone can try it out. Um, invite you to start there or allsecure.com. That's awesome. And uh, the name, like, so we, we cover the gamut of different companies. And sometimes you're like, I can't really find the connection between the name of the company and what they actually do. It's a little confusing. This one is relatively straight on the nose. How'd you come up with it? Oh, uh, the way that we came up with our logo is actually a math sign. It's the for all sign in math. Got it. And the way we came up with it is I couldn't create a logo, but I could do that. Yeah. And it looked kind of cool, right? Yeah. 
Um, we had a lot of people who thought it was anarchy, but we're like, no, it's the mathematical symbol. And it actually helped with our marketing because it kind of targets the right people who understand it. The people that know now. So that's how we got it. We thought security should be for everyone, not just for the developers. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, we'll link that all in the show notes. People can find it in the app that they're probably listening to this right now or at goingdeeperthereon.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, David, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. The thing that I've been thinking about doing and trying to do is taking what I'm good at and then paying it forward. And so I think this would be the one actual challenge is go and look at what you're good at and then think about how you can pay it forward with that skill. A lot of us think generically about, oh, there's homeless, I'm going to donate money. Yeah. But unless you're an expert, you're not really using your skill. So what I would say is if you're a computer expert, go and teach a kid computer science. If you're an artist, go and teach a kid art. But make it something that is your particular skill, the place you can offer value. Absolutely. We've um, interviewed Eric Jorgensen, who has an entire course on using leverage. And he's about to talk about applying it to your own life. So automate what you can, delegate what you can, remove these different things so that you just apply more leverage to all the goals that you're trying to accomplish. And really what you're articulating is applying leverage to the work of helping others. Money's helpful, money's fungible, money's great. But when it's something that you've uh, you know, invested a disproportionate amount of your time into, and then you can shorten someone's cycle there, that's going to be really impactful. Absolutely. Beautiful. I love that challenge. That's one of my favorite ones we've had in a while. Uh, David, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. We just went deep with David Brumley. Hope you're out there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thanks for watching to the end of our conversation with David. If you enjoyed it, I think you'd also like our past conversation with Eric Jorgensen, the author of The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. We talk in more detail about the power of leverage and how to use more of it yourself.